0: My first jazz guitar player that I really remember loving was Kenny Burrell. Just the bluesiness and the elegance and the eloquence of his playing. It was just such a beautiful counterpoint musically, sound-wise and feel-wise to everything, even though I was much more interested in playing a lot more than he liked to play, all in Charlie Parker. That was my first one. And then Wes just blew my mind. And then Barney Kessel just creamed me. And then, of course, 1972 or three was the year Virtuoso Joe Pass came out. And that changed the world for us guitar players. That just changed the world. By then, I guess I was pretty well-printed. I was probably about 17 at that time. My first Monterey Jazz Festival I went to in 1973, Joe Pass was there. Roy Eldridge was there, or Jesse Gillespie was there. It was amazing. It was just mind blowing experience.
1: Welcome, welcome to the Hot Jazz Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. We have the great Bruce Foreman, noted guitar player, apprenticed with Barney Kessel, held it down at Pearls in San Francisco for many years, friend of Clint Eastwood. He's performed at Monterey Jazz Festival countless times. I present to you our podcast with Bruce Foreman. Let's take a ride out to Riverside Drive To a place before your some of us in the music community know a little bit about your story, but I want to get it straight for perpetuity. Where were you born?
0: I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts.
1: Okay. What was your father's name?
0: Robert. And your mother? Marion. Wow. You're going to do an internet search? You're going to identity theft or something here? <laughs> I've got bad news for you. You're not going to want my credit rating. I'm
1: just so, <laughs> no, we just want to get the story straight. To yeah. me, you're a, a, a VIP and a, a a big part of the jazz legacy, that jazz guitar legacy that that is going to continue on long after we're gone. And so, I just want to get the story straight for everybody. And so, what did your father do for a living?
0: He was originally a lawyer and then went into business for a lot of his life on uh, furniture business and transportation businesses. And then he went back to being a lawyer later in life and was a judge when he passed away.
1: Wow, wow. Now, did he play music at all? No. No. And how about your mother? What did she do?
0: uh, My mother, she uh, was an artist. She passed away about six years ago. She was an artist. She was the one who was very encouraging of me to do artistic things. And she was the one who got me on the piano at the age of six. And I was already you know, playing guitar too, by about 12. And by about 13, I let her let me just go only guitar. She was not real happy about it, but she let me do it. And she was still very supportive of my guitar playing. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. She's really supportive, unlike my father.
1: Sorry about about that, but it seems like it worked out okay. So what well, was the, the
0: music picks you, you don't pick it, and sometimes the more people try to stop you, the more it makes you want to do it. If it pick you.
1: I think so. And so what was the atmosphere like in the home? Was there a music playing where you're although yeah, you my mom didn't yeah?
0: My mom played music and me and my brothers were all into I was seven when the Beatles came out. So you can imagine I saw it on Ed Sullivan and I was listening to the radio and I was listening to classical music because I had to hear the pieces I was playing. And yeah, it was there. And I was, then I was in Texas. I never don't remember living in Massachusetts. I think we moved when I was about one or two. Okay. So I was in Texas then. And of course, there was a lot of pickup truck music in Texas always. A lot of early country Hank Williams and that kind of stuff was, and even Bob Wills was stuff that, was being played i can just remember going to a barbecue joint with my parents and hearing that on a pickup truck radio when i got out of the car kind of
1: thing wow so uh, much you're, you're much younger than willie nelson but i i always say that willie nelson somebody like that grew up at this wonderful time and, and heard the bob wills in the western swing He heard right. irving berlin he heard so many things and it sounds like you as well It was a real melting pot for you of all the different styles that...
0: Honey, you wonder how much of that's almost programmed into you when you're born. I noticed that like, what kind of music I was drawn to, regardless of what style it was, I always seemed to like the more harmonic, melodic stuff. In terms of when listening to rock bands early before I got into jazz, I was into... Elton John over somebody more simple because he had more complex chords in his songs from kind of versus Hank Williams because the songs seemed to have more harmony in them. I know I didn't know that's what I was listening for but I look back at the stuff that I've always been attracted to and I wonder was that just already printed onto my hard drive before I arrived or
1: (laughs) I don't know if it was on your internal hard drive but it sounds like you like more music in your music you're attracted to things that have more substance maybe more going on but still you like the melody but stuff i always say that about myself i'm i find so much of i'm probably going to draw some haters on this but so much of today's music just so dumbed down where i'm a so i'm a singer and i play guitar but and so i I love the lyricist i love the great lyricists. i don't care if it's Bernie Taupin, or Ira Gershwin, or Cole Porter, or Johnny Mercer, and I just hear the the lyric, just the lyrics alone are just dumbed down so much without telling a story. And then the music, oftentimes, I, I like bridges in songs. I, I like for musical events to happen during a a piece of music, not just to stay on one chord.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, I really find myself drawn to simplicity, but. Like Hank Williams to me is just super state-of-the-art music. I can't think of anything I, I hold in any higher reverence than anything else. And yet there's a directness and simplicity, but yet there's, there's a harmony there that it's it's expansive within itself. But I, I do find myself more drawn to like a Gershwin-style harmonization or corporeal. It's just, and like I say even the, the the rock players of my youth that I when I was before I was aware of just traffic for instance or Harum, same guy Stevie one would obviously yeah. those kind of players really that music just grabbed me in a different way and so when I found jazz it was a natural oh this is where I belong kind of thing
1: that's really beautiful what you said about Hank Williams and I couldn't agree more the storytelling the way that there's a word um Prosody, the marriage of melody and lyric, and with Hank Williams, it goes even deeper than that. So the melody, the storytelling, and the and the music, the chords, even though they're quite simple, it just works so well, and it's so direct. And I I just really love what you said about him.
0: And we get bridges. <laughs> Don't forget bridges. <laughs> get bridges with Hank. All his songs have bridges.
1: <laughs> We're all there. I got a hot Rod for and it's know <laughs> yeah, right, I think it's excellent. We got a couple jazz guitarists here talking about a country singer.
0: I do believe Bird was into Hank Williams. I think I remember hearing you know that could be mythology, but I remember hearing that story. I bet it's true. And um notice
1: how a lot of musicians have covered the country songs, whether it's Tony Bennett or Ray Charles, they love that a song that has good bones. And I know a lot of jazz musicians like Bird. Enjoyed playing songs that many people would consider corny, like Surrey with the fringe on top. You know, if it's got an interesting metal melody and some nice changes, they're on it. They don't have, good musicians don't put up those walls and are not quite so judgmental. Although I find myself creeping into them <laughs> sometimes in some ways. So what was the first jazz thing that, that really turned you on to, to that music? Was there a
0: jazz or a jazz guitar record that made you go, wow? I want well, to do of that. course there were, but the moment of jazz for me was, I was, we moved to San Francisco, It from were from Texas, basically, and uh, I was in this high school, and there was good musicians in this high school, and this one kid who was a son of a jazz musician, bass player, um, we were playing some tunes, yeah. you know, and I could, I could barely play the changes of the songs they were playing and he said to me have you heard bird and i was like bird <laughs> what who what's a birds of what not it you know anyways um he says no and i went over to his house and he played some charlie parker records and i just couldn't believe i'm sure i'd heard it tangentially in my in the soundtrack of my life maybe there's a soundtrack for Be- bebop was like for betty Boop movies there was just this swing thing and this wailing and this blowing and this freedom and this incredibly rich harmony and melody thing happening and of course the technical thing too and it was just like oh this is my shit here and so from that moment I jumped in and then I'm still like a birdaholic Charlie Parker but he's like I got in there and I of course I went back to Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Coleman Hawkins and Louis Armstrong. I knew about Louis Armstrong by then. And then I looked the other way, the forward way, and was hearing Wayne Shorter and John Coltrane, which I didn't really like at first. My ears needed to get acclimated to the jazz atmosphere before that really sounded great to me. I see. Um, And on the guitar, my first jazz guitar player that I really remember loving was Kenny Burrell just the bluesiness and the elegance and the eloquence of his playing and the way he came around, particularly around with, with Jimmy Smith. that It was just such a beautiful counterpoint musically, sound-wise and feel-wise to everything, even though I was much more interested in playing a lot more than he liked to play, all of Charlie Parker. That was my first one. And then Wes just blew my mind. And then Barney Kessel just... Creamy, and then, of course, 1972 or three was the year Virtuoso Joe Pass came out. And that changed the world for us guitar players. That just changed the world. By then, I guess I was pretty well-printed. I was probably about 17 at that time. And that was, again, my first Monterey Jazz Festival I went to in 1973. Joe Pass was there. Roy Eldridge was there. Jizzy Gillespie was there. It was amazing. It was just mind blowing experience.
1: I saw Joe Pass at the at the old Yoshi's, which is actually the the middle Yoshi's, but I I saw him there, and he played solo. Um, and he was as funny as a borscht belt comedian. He was hilarious. People were yelling out requests and bye bye Blackbird, and he goes. And he had a cigar in his mouth and he was like Groucho March or something and he's saying, I can't do requests, It'll be like I'm doing a wedding or something like that. He was so funny and uh, I did not expect that out of him. But it, it sounds like Charlie Parker was um a, do you remember what song it was or what record that was?
0: That no. yeah. one. Oh man!
1: Wow, you know? wow! It, it, listening to your voice, it sounds like that music still has an impact on you, and oh, it just still, are, I
0: mean, still. When I play Bird, it, it's something it, it energizes my soul.
1: Uh, that's a beautiful way to put it. Forgive me, but I do hear a little Barney Kessel in your playing, and I mean that strictly oh, yeah, as no? a
0: compliment. <laughs> I can consider that a compliment. I it's, love Barney. It's a,
1: it's, it's a huge compliment.
0: Barney was a not just an influence he was a mentor and a friend really and a hero yeah and man oh, my wow. guy is half quotes from barney kessel he was my fan Even he took me on the road wow. he you know, we played together a lot we, we stayed friends yeah he was a great friend And then when he got sick i would visit him and play his guitar and after he passed away i would visit his widow and play his guitar and
1: yeah, this is so great to to hear. I, I I saw the quotes on your website from Barney. I didn't know that it was that personal of a relationship. He played with Fred Astaire. He goes way back to his his body of work, his discography, and and you got to play with him and call more important to call him friend. That's a really and, great.
0: Yeah, it's yeah. yeah. So many people don't really uh, give him, in my opinion, a historical. Uh, importance he had of course he wasn't the first one to do it probably he might have been one of the first ones to do it but the guitar trio guitar bass drums before those poll winners records I think there was one record that I know of that was recorded before that was guitar bass drums that was Howard Roberts with Chico Hamilton and I forget who the bass player was that was a guitar trio record that ensemble and then that record, of course, was not very well known, whereas the poll winners' records were big deals in the world. Yeah. And now you look at how the guitar has grown up to become a, a competent, sophisticated, harmonic, melodic instrument that can play on top of bass and drums. Because before that, pretty much guitar was like with a piano or with a vibes player or with another guitar player. Just a guitar player on top of bass and drums was very rare. And hardly ever recorded. Barney did it all those years that he won the polls with Ray and Shelley. And his first one was 1957. The bridge in 1962 is really considered as like a big moment for the guitar with Jim Hall and Sonny Rollins because all of a sudden we got a jazz rhythm section with no piano but a guitar instead. But dude, yeah. that's been happening for five years with the poll winners. Before, and nowadays, you know how guitar trios and guitar rhythm sections are just considered normal, yeah, it is very normal and very standard, yes, when Barney first did it, or when Howard was first doing it, we're talking about the electric guitar being not even twenty years old so
1: makes me think that Barney started on acoustic because of when he grew up, and he had right. this great right hand, as did George Barnes. Yes. He had a great right hand, both of those guys. And I, so they were of the age where they would have grown up playing an acoustic and then ber- been early adopters of the electric guitar, the ho- hollow body arch top guitar. So you studied with Barney. I, I
0: didn't study with him. I, he just mentored me. It was different. In San Francisco when I was growing up, the guitar players would all come to town to play. And usually they would have a, they would have a workshop during the day. And then they played a concert at night. And usually for one price, or a little bit more, you could get both. And of course I would do that. And I'd go to these workshops where they play and they'd answer questions and they if anybody wanted to play. And of course I'd probably injured people running up to the bandstand to play with them, knocked them out of the way and shit. I don't know, I'm sure I was that kid everybody hated. And then I played with them and they got to know me. I mean, I played with Joe too and Herb Ellis. But Bonnie liked to play with a second guitar, so he started hiring me just on the gigs, mostly around San Francisco to have a second guitar. He just liked that was his presentation. He did it later with Emily Remler a lot and Martin Taylor. So I would just find myself playing with him a lot on the West Coast, and then he started taking me on the road, and it was great. And he knew, I think, also that there many as many, there many jazz fans as there were. There were also guitar fans. Yes, I think he understood that. I wish he'd been looking back. I'm figuring that out. You know, I wish he'd just told me (laughs) because it just seemed like we'd play gigs and there would be, oh, I'd see all the jazz fans in town there, but I'd also see a bunch of people I didn't know. You know what I mean? Oh, these are guitar freaks. And with the second guitar, Barney loved to do a part of the show. was like a cutting session. And he was there to just whip me to shreds. Well, That's got
1: to be good for you in, in, in a way.
0: All right, believe me, he bled too.
1: You know what I mean? I made sure he
0: bled a little bit too.
1: Are there any recordings of these sessions?
0: You can scour the internet for it. I don't, I don't have any. But there are probably, yeah. And this might even be, I don't even know if they had video cameras. It would be film cameras back then. But yeah, we did it a lot. I even subbed with the great guitars a couple of times when once for Herb and once for Tal when they were in San Francisco and needed a guy.
1: Wow, Tal Farlow.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of Martin Taylor. Do you know who that is?
1: Of course. Yeah, he was one he so I started playing with David Grisman in twenty fourteen and Martin Taylor done a lot of recording with Dog. And so they they're always talking about Martin and Dog has been kind enough to give me all of his records. He yeah, has a huge vault, but all the CDs as well. And so they did a nice record together, Martin Taylor and, and Grisman, called Beginning to See the Light.
0: Martin's been reviving the great guitarist concept. Sure. And, and he's doing it like they were. Like, I think when he does it over in Europe, it's with Ulf Joaquinius and maybe Phil Catherine or somebody. I don't care. Gary's iterations there. I know he did it with me and John Jorgensen. I, he called me to do it with Borelli LeGrand, this last, but I had another tour I had to do. But we're supposed to be doing, we've got a thing coming up next summer with me and Borelli and Martin. Oh, no, I'm doing, going to that. I'm going to that. I've always been just a jazz guy, never really paid attention to the guitar world. And it's, and I gotta say, you know, I've been teaching at USC now almost 20 years, about 18 years, and they have a really good guitar department that I teach in. It's jazz and it's, studio arts and you know it's all sorts of different kind of styles on the jazz guy it's really made me appreciate my own home instrument so much more and the community of guitar players more i just thought i'm a jazz musician we're all musicians you know it doesn't matter what what you play but we guitar players are different and so i guess i finally come home to i'm still a musician still love all instruments and want to play with all instruments but uh, i finally come to the deep Deepest appreciation for my own instrument that I should have had my whole life. I was going to say
1: about Wolf. The guy has zero chops. Just kidding, but he's remarkable.
0: Yeah, Uh, Yeah. you played with him,
1: or you're going to play with him?
0: Oh, Wolf, I've played with over the years, sure. Yeah, but I I don't have any plans to because usually he does it with Martin over in Europe. And I see Martin's smart about the travel and whatnot. When it happens, it'll happen. If not, but I've played with Wolf with Wolf over the years, and I played with Ray Brown, and he played with Oscar, and I did play with Oscar. for we got we're just connected. And boy, what a great player he is! I love him.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think he's fantastic. And so you're going to be playing with Borelli, or you have played with? Well, Borelli. No, we we're
0: supposed to, and I couldn't do that tour. And the manager's been calling, setting up dates for another one. He's just like, now we're in the date but that's the plan things change but that's what i'm planning to do Unless i get fired first say something, uh, I, I say something wrong on this podcast maybe they'll just change their minds
1: no B- borelli we love you we're not saying anything bad about you that's fantastic i gotta geek out a little bit on on barney so you spend a lot of time playing with him flat wounds or or just regular round wound strings or do you remember i can i
0: do know exactly because i you, do you know that I have his guitar? Am I allowed to say, shut up? <laughs> do you have it with you?
1: That's Barney's guitar?
0: This is the guitar he played his whole career pretty much, yeah. <laughs> You're speechless, George. Wow. Um, speechless. wow. Yeah, this is Barney's guitar. I got it about two years ago, three years ago. I made a record. The Poll Winners, tribute to the Poll Winners, where we had Ray Brown's bass and Shelly Mann's drums played by John Clayton and Jeff Hamilton. And we've all played. They all played with Barney Ray and Shelly, as did I. So it was like kids playing their parents' instruments. What model guitar is that? I know that that's not a regular. um, I've seen
1: Charlie Christian-style pickup, but that guitar has a cutaway, which is.
0: Okay, so this is what it is. It's a 1946 Gibson years 350.
1: 350,
0: And it originally had a P90 in it. And he took it out and he put in a Charlie Christian pickup.
1: I see. Because he wanted a guitar where he had access to the upper register.
0: Yeah, probably wanted the upper register first. And then Barney was always tinkering with stuff. The bridge is handmade by somebody. The new knob's on it. It looks like the headstock was altered a little bit. I mean, obviously, it's been painted over. but But that, I think, was because he was just mad at Gibson. I don't know if you can see, but like the tapering of the headstock, which is not typical of Gibson, that's a D'Angelico thing. And I know John Pisano, back in the 50s, all the guys were bringing their 175s to John D'Angelico to get it worked on. And this is a story John related to me, which is like he brought the 175 in to show it to John and to get some work done. And John said, "Why are you playing this piece of shit?" <laughs> and, oh, no. and and he, you know, I see, and he just like proceeded to just tell John everything was wrong with it. John let him switch out the fingerboard to an ebony fingerboard. He felt that that rosewood was just a dumb wood for fingerboards. Yeah. Wow, that was John D'Angelo. That was what John Pisano told me. John D'Angelo said he also said that the Headstock needed to be tapered. That there was something about the way the, the instrument resonates that, that's really super important. And if you look at the D'Angelico's, they do that. This guitar does that too. Now, I don't know if D'Angelico did it, but I do know that this guitar is now on its third fingerboard because he originally had the one that had the split parallelograms, which was rosewood. Uh-huh. They changed it out to one that was ebony, and it was 22 fret. And then when the headstock got broken by the airlines, which I was on that tour with and we were in Australia, he had another pick, another fingerboard put on. And that was a 20-fret fingerboard. And uh, the wood, which is the one it has now. And he told me two reasons why he did at different times, why he uh, painted the headstock. One. Was because he was mad at Gibson. They didn't give him any money, and they were giving Les Pauls love. And he just he hated the Barney Kessel model. He didn't like it. Whatever, blah blah blah. He just didn't want to advertise for them. That was one story. Another story was that he felt that he had uh, altered the guitar so much—new knobs, new pickup, new fingerboard—that uh, that he just felt that it wasn't a Gibson anymore.
1: I, I can see that. And the um Charlie Christian style pickup, I've watched some documentaries. There there's a bunch of YouTube stuff on Barney and he's talking about his love and appreciation for Charlie Christian. Yes. And so that I guess that pickup is an homage to Charlie. Is that one of the single coil ones? Is it do you have problems yes.
0: with noise? A 39 pickup, Yes. It's it's noisy. You know, everybody always said Bruce will never play pedals. Well, now I've got a pedal that I bring around with me all the time. It's called a Hum Debugger by Electro Harmonics. Uh-huh. And it gets rid of the Hum, and it doesn't really change the quality of the tone of the instrument at all. There you and go. I use it, I'd say, about 30% of the time I need it on a gig. It's a little bigger than it needs to be, I'm sure. I have to figure out a way to take it and condense it to something a lot smaller. But, and if Electro Harmonics, if you're listening... I'm happy to talk to you about it. I sense a
1: collaboration coming, and we're going. what we're going to do is we're going to downsize the thing. Make yeah, it a little you, smaller.
0: You can tell there's a lot of air in there. You pick it up, it weighs nothing, and it's this big chassis. But anyways, it's a great pedal. Uh, you, like, if, for instance, at the Monterey Jazz Festival, those big stages with lots of lights and everything. Oh, yeah. It.
1: Terrible hum. Yeah. You can get a or, horrible.
0: But back to your original question. See, I still have a memory here. Um, yes, you, you do. You get... Uh, This guitar had flat wound string. I I kept it the way he had it. I really haven't. I didn't put a pick guard on it as much as I wanted to. I didn't do any. I kept it historically the way he had it. And he had flat wounds, which really, I didn't remember that. When I first started playing, I love flat wounds, and I played them for a long time, but I just found that they got too muddy sounding. So I went to round wounds. Never was happy with them all the years I played round wounds. Got this guitar, it's got flat limbs, and felt like I'd gotten home as much for anything, the flower But the beautiful thing is, is the Charlie Christian pickup is so clear, that muddiness that I was getting, I'm realizing it was the, in a lot of ways, it's the combination of a flat string and a humbucking pickup. That is really a lot of where that muddiness I was getting
1: when I hear in your sound is what I hear in Barney's and also George Barnes' sound. It 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 doesn't have that. All I can call think of it is that slurpy kind of sound. It sounds acoustic in its right. own way. It, it sounds really great. That was such an important question for me because I'm a Labella guy. I'm endorsed by Labella, and I use I've started using their tape wound strings. I don't know if you've tried tape wound. Yeah. strings. I like them, and I like flatwounds now, but when I, when I was growing up, being a rock player, I, I had no interest in flatwounds. I was like, what's wrong with these strings? They're dead. And now, when I see your Instagram postings, I notice you slide around a lot, but of course, flatwounds, you don't hear the noise. You don't hear that. You know, you know, there's no
0: resistance to it. I mean, I was talking to John Schofield about this last night because he was really interested. I hadn't seen him since I'd gotten Barney's guitar. It'd been a couple of years. We were talking about it. You know, I've said how I'd fallen back in love with flatwounds and how so much of my style is moving around. And then I found that what really cracked the code was the pickup string relationship. Yes. For me. And he was really interested in that because watch Sco play. He's throwing his hand around like I am a lot. I mean, obviously musically in a very different way, but very different yes. characteristics that are similar. I don't know whether it's the squeaky because I don't hear it that much electrically, but I'm sure the resistance thing is a drag. You just go sliding your hand over a string that's got rail wounds, there's a resistance to
1: it. Can I quote you? The resistance thing is a drag, no pun intended.
0: <laughs> that's, I, I'm known for being redundant.
1: You're known for being an absolutely amazing guitar player. It's, it's so great to hear
0: that about the flat-wound strings
1: because well, when I was...
0: Yeah, I say is I'm very happy with what I got. I'll play with guys who've got roundwounds and humbuckers, and I call it muffled sometimes. I really want to sound like a tenor saxophone too, but I still want to hear the note clearly. But there's a reason why I'm playing one note or another, and I want the pitch to be not difficult to ascertain.
1: Back to the guitar for a final couple questions here, geeking out on the guitar. How did you come come across that guitar? Was it from his widow or his estate? I hope we don't have to go to
0: commercial soon as the wrong people. I, of course, I knew Barney. I hung out with him. I played it when he was sick. I, I would go down and visit Phyllis's widow and hang out with her. And she'd always bring it out for me to play it, and make sure it wasn't going south in any structural way. And we both believe that instrument was just incredibly valuable most guitar players are kind of like Imelda Marcus was with shoes
1: you can't have how many is too much just just one more
0: yeah Just one more Barney played this guitar pretty much his whole career I know that he had aria and made made him a guitar and there was the Barney Kessel model but other than photo ops and maybe a couple of tours he was on this guitar you can just go back and look at pictures this has been slightly refinished, but you can—it's identifiable. This was the guitar he loved, and and all the way back to Julie London, the Crimea River, and then we knew George Van Eps' guitar had sold for a lot of money. So we figured, wow, if that guitar went through a lot of money, then Barney's is going to go for really a lot of money. Only not because of playing ability or quality of players, but just because of historical. It's an artifact. It's a piece of history. And so I thought it was going to be worth like a quarter million dollars or half a million dollars. I really thought that that that's where it was going. And of course, I'm a jazz musician. I don't have that or anywhere near it for a guitar. So um, she said, eventually decided to put it up for auction. And I wished her well. It was too painful for me. A lot of people already thought I owned it by then because I would do a Facebook picture or video of me playing it when I was visiting Phyllis. And people would call me and say, are you selling that guitar? I go, no, it's not mine. I wish I had it. And if I did, I wouldn't sell it. it ended up being sold. It somehow didn't go for hardly any money. It was tragic how little it sold for. I'm not going to give the exact price, but it's probably historical record if somebody wants to dig into it. And I would have given Phyllis more than the auction house actually gave her for that guitar. And it, so it was sad, but it went to a really nice guy. The guy was a Charlie Christian fan. He was from Oklahoma, too, like Barney and Charlie. He, in his words, he said he just bought it to keep it from going to a foreign collector and dropping off the world, dropping out of sight. Wow. And I became friends with him, and he lived in Colorado. And I said, whenever I went played play a gig, I invited him to my gigs. He plays gigs, too. But he came, and we became friends. And that's where it went until during the pandemic. I was playing at the place called Kumba Jazz Center. It's in San Francisco. Yes, yes. Yep. And I was driving there. It was, it was during the pandemic. So it was like going to be a live stream. Just me and another musician. Nobody in the club. It was just all going right. go to be. And um driving up there. And I swear to you, George, it was like Barty was in the car with me. And I, I don't believe in this shit. Okay. Now, let me just start off. I don't believe in this paranormal kind of thing. But you're not a, You're not okay. a magical thinker, right? <laughs> no. Barney was there, and all I could do was think about the times we played together, the records that I listened to that influenced me and inspired me. That's where I was going with it and wondering about how the guitar was doing. Just all this good stuff. I could even, it got so weird, I could smell that horrible aftershave he always wore. He wore this aftershave that (laughs) shook his hand. Your hand was going to smell for two days, man. No, There's no kind of cleanser that was going to get that off. And, and I could smell that. It's, like, it's so weird. And so I got to Kumba and I realized, oh, I played with him like 40 years ago here. That's why all this is happening to me. But then I realized I'd played there a couple dozen times and that I never really thought about it till now. So I just picked up my phone and I emailed the guy who had the guitar and I said, man, you're not going to believe this. I'm having like a Barney experience. I'm in this club that we played a long time ago. Hope you're doing well with the guitar. Hope you're doing well. If you ever want to get rid of it, please give me first crack at it. That's all I Played the game. Came back to my phone when I eventually looked at my emails. It said, hi, Bruce. Can't believe you're contacting me now. This is just today I was talking to my wife. That it's time for me to let that guitar go. She doesn't know what it is or what it's worth or how to sell it. I'm getting older. She says, I only really bought it to keep it from going into the hands of a foreign collector. It wasn't an investment, or, and I never play it. He says, it should have been yours in the first place. He says, just give me what I paid for it. Come get it, because I'm not going to ship it. And give me a guitar lesson, and, and you can have it. Wow. So a week later, of course, it's the pandemic. No gigs or anything. I'm in in the car driving to Colorado. <laughs> pick up the guitar, and that that's how I got it. And and there and I'd always had that idea of that project with John and Jeff doing revisiting the poll winners with the original instruments. I'd had that idea since Barney was sick. I even told Barney he had a stroke, and he was kind of incommunicative at the time. He wasn't able to really you couldn't. He couldn't talk or anything, so I couldn't tell whether he liked the idea or not once I approached Phyllis with the idea you know after he'd passed away, and she was uncomfortable with me taking it because I would have to get it set up again because it hadn't been played in twenty right. years other than by me and between you and me barney Barney kept it set up in a way that was really hard to play i didn't was the
1: action really high or something
0: in some place. It was like he liked a lot of relief on the neck. Too much relief, yeah. So it was like really low at the nut and the uh, towards the body, but really high in the middle. You know, yeah, not,
1: not good for cord and being in tune. Yeah,
0: that was for him,
1: but uh,
0: I I always thought he kept it that way just to keep people from sitting in on it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's amazing
0: so that's how i got it and then i got it set up i've had some really great luthiers setting it up who do you, who do you
1: have to do your work is it is it kamimoto, kamimoto or the guy gary brower
0: did it the oh, first gary, yeah i've been going to gary for years yep yeah. and then uh, mark tossman do you know him he's brilliant he did it and then i was down in la and it just it, we didn't need a setup it needed just the frets were starting to pit, and it's still the frets that Barney had on. And I want to make them last as long as they can. Sure. So it's basically, a, a light fret mill or whatever you call it. Norik Renson did that down in L.A. All the same thing I'm doing with guitar players. Every guitar, guitar player, I want them to play the guitar. I want to get everybody's DNA on that guitar that I can, and then just and with great guitar makers, I want all of them to do a little tune up on it. Just so imagine. At some point, we can make, like, the perfect human being with just the DNA on this guitar. It, that's funny. Do you still
1: have Barney's flat wounds on it, or are those longer?
0: I, I have the set. It had the last set he played before his stroke in a box. And I use a similar set. Actually, he was like me. He's 14 to 56. Yeah,
1: pretty, pretty standard. I have a set of Django's old guitar strings that I bought. This guitar It was an old Selmer that he had used for a tour of Belgium, and there was a, the guitar came with a, a very nice handwritten letter by the son of the guy who owned the guitar that Django used for the tour. And also, I received a couple sets of strings. I haven't done any DNA testing on Django's strings, but I do have them put away for safekeeping. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but it's just a, a fun, fun thing to have because I, I love Django, and so I see this real. Clear lineage from because Barney loved Charlie Christian so much and was an evangelical for Did he speak about Charlie very
0: much to you or? Oh yeah, he loved to talk about Charlie, you know, and he got to spend a day with him and it was just one of the days of his life. I think he was fourteen or fifteen at the time. Or sixteen. Really young. Charlie, of course, was really young too. Yes. And Barney turns 100 next month. His birthday is in the middle of October. October 16th, I'm pretty sure. Or and and when, when did he pass? He passed in 06, May of 06. So he was pretty long-lived. Yeah, unfortunately. He had a stroke in about 68 or so. Uh-huh. And and he started to come back from it. And then, you know, after about six or eight years, and then he had another one that was pretty much worse. Uh, and then eventually, a, a brain tumor got him. But he never, after the first stroke, never really got back to playing. Yeah, it's October seventeenth. This, this is his hundredth birthday. He's already in the history books. Oh yeah, you know, everybody knows
1: about him. And um, so we're talking so much about the electric guitar, and you're known as a, an electric. Guitarist, I'm not talking about playing through a hundred watt Marshall stacks or anything like that. It's just you have have the cool, the cool sound and everything. Any thoughts on um, the acoustic jazz guitarists, whether it's Django Reinhardt, Eddie Lang, Nick Lucas, any of those people? Did they register with you when you were coming up?
0: No, it was more a process of discovery later. No, I found them later In, in life, you know, Eddie Lang in particular, Carl Kress. Django, I'd known about all along. He was always in the background, the gypsy. <laughs> yeah. But everybody's favorite, you know, and for good reason. What a genius. Yeah. Django, but it was a different style. I just wasn't really into that rhythmically, that style of music at the time. It's more ar-
1: more arcane. A lot of. I sleep. don't know. More, didn't swing, didn't more, swing as much.
0: Yeah. It was a different kind of swing. It just didn't, God, I loved it and I loved playing it, but it, it's like some people, it's like almost a religion. It takes over your life, but it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I have I, I
1: performed at several of the, these things they call Django Fest. And I had my own Django, right? And Heart Festival at the Freight and Salvage for, for several years there. And when you get a bunch of these guys together, and this is no disrespect because we all love Django. Every guitar player, we owe, owe something to him. He's like the Big Bang or the first great virtuoso on the instrument. Um, all apologies to Eddie Lang, of course. But when you get a bunch of these guys together, it's like a big Star Trek convention. It's even geekier than we're being right now about Barney's guitar and stuff. It's Django like to fish. Django like to shoot pool. You can ne- it's, he's the icon of a religion,
0: But still, I I love that music. It just didn't speak to me the way it does to other people. I still listen to him a lot to this day. It pops up on my shuffle plays or on the radio or whatever, or I go by and hear a band and they're playing that way, and I just love it. You know what I mean? There's no denying just the melodic genius of that man.
1: Yeah. Now it's a big
0: aftershock in the world. And
1: it's it for me, it's been for many years now, it's been like a secret weapon. Listen to a little bit of Django every day. It just sets my mind and it just reminds me of um, what music can be. In addition to everything else I'm going to listen to today. Like today, I'm definitely going to listen to some Barney after speaking with you. I'm going to listen to some Charlie. But uh, try to listen to a little bit of Django every day. And I tell my music students... When they come in, I'll be teaching a, a young woman her first lesson on Wednesday night. She's a big um, TikTok influencer on Instagram. And I can tell that she's never really listened to Django. I think I'm going to blow her mind. Oh, yeah. Gonna... <laughs> oh, great. So jumping forward just a little bit, I, I want to hear about this style of music that you have developed, the cowbop. I want to hear how that yeah. came about
0: and where that's going and what it is. I'm happy to say the cow still moves. And it didn't kill the cow. What, what happened was, was, I'm a bebopper, that's my thing, but I also like swing music. And of course, Western swing is, is in my DNA just out of sheer osmosis. But I'm a cowboy. The reason I live down here in Carmel Valley is I left San Francisco around 97 or 2000 to move down here because I was riding horses and starting horses and doing some ranch work and competing on horseback.
1: You you really have that in you. You're a cowboy.
0: And right then Carmel Valley, we had some of the, like the horse whisperer thing was big. I don't know if you remember that. Yes. Yes, I do. Some of the original guys of that movement lived here and I got to be friends with them because they would come to my gigs And then I would get to ride with them during the day. And then they'd come to my gigs. I just loved that lifestyle when I was off the road to be here versus the city. And I wasn't getting younger and riding horses ain't an old man's sport. Take my word for it. So I just, we did it. And that's how actually I met my wife. And we she moved down here. And then there were these things called cowboy festivals. I mean, I didn't know about it. cowboy music and poetry festivals. That was a real big thing back in the, you know, around the turn of the century, you know, me and my wife, she sings. We were at one of those things at some jam session they were having. And some guy had a guitar, of course. And the, and the, the guy who ran the festival knew me. He says, Bruce, you play. And She sings. Why don't you do a set? So we got up and we did like, uh, don't tense me. In, and I'm an old Cowhand," And of course I'm playing like all of Sonny Rollins or just jazz style. And she's singing swing style because that's where she's coming from. And people freaked out. We got gigs. And then so the next thing you know, we had gigs and we started playing that music around Carmel Valley Village. And then musicians started finding us who wanted it. It was like they wanted to play. The music was so much fun. And what I was doing was basically taking Western songs, either Bob Will's tunes or – like Cole Porter and Johnny Mercer and because there's was that whole western wave of the 30s that all that stuff happened and then Tumble and Tumbleweeds take their songs and of course I would debop them up a little bit, reharmonize them and play crazy solos over them. Next thing you know guys are joining the band and then then we had a band then we had gigs, then we needed CDs, then we needed more gigs. It's just like, it just happened And, and I liked it because there's something about Putting on a costume, sure. And to me, putting on Western clothes when I get up to play the guitar is a costume. I dress that way normally, but if I play a gig, I tone it down. I'm a jazz musician, but this—I was going full embroidered shirts and big wide ties and a cowboy hat and boots and everything. It unleashed the performer side of me. You know, the one that like wants to be a comedian and do shtick and sing funny songs. I can see that. I can okay. see that. Okay. Cowboy made that happen. To go Riders in the Sky a little bit. If you know that band?
1: I'm very familiar with that band, yes.
0: So it enabled us to go in that direction and unlock that part of me. that I was always telling jokes on the bandstand as a jazz leader, but this was like that on steroids. It was a shown jazz cowboy band. It's like Spade Cooley, Cooley, basically, kind of was.
1: My old guitar teacher, if I may interject, my old guitar teacher, Jimmy Luttrell, who's still alive, he played with Spade Cooley when he was very oh. young. And he played on the song Fadoodlin'. And now, you know, the history of Spade Cooley, when he found out that his wife may have been having an affair, you you know what happened next. Yeah, he, very
0: unfortunate.
1: But he, according to to Jimmy, who played with him for a couple of years down, down there. I got to say, as bad as it was for Spade, it was worse for his wife. But the thing is, what Jimmy Luttrell tells me is that, so we all know of Bob Wills as the as the king of Western swing. But apparently, according to Jimmy, that Spade Cooley was really, really something special. And you can see some of the old clips. I had never heard of him, to tell you the truth. But through Jimmy, I got to know his music. And the guy, he looked like a movie star. He had the twin fiddles. He had the best band. It was really Giving Bob Wills a, a run for his money, but of course he's been written out of the history books a little bit. But he had a
0: TV presence too.
1: Yes, he, yes, he did.
0: That that at that time that really made a difference. And yeah, Spade cool Jimmy Weibel was in Spade Cool's mm-hmm. band. The guitar player. And, and Jimmy Weibel was also in Bob's band, too. But interchangeable, uh, yeah. Yeah. And then we became like this turn to the punch bowl band, like the band everybody hated. We would play a jazz festival and everybody hated us for being cowboys. And we'd play a cowboy festival and everybody hated us for playing jazz. And yet <laughs> somehow, somehow we ended up being popular. And the band, like we did a gig the beginning of this last month of September. And, and we've got some gigs coming up. I mean, since the pandemic, it's a five-piece band. The band the, the band is down in L.A. So to get us all together, it costs money now. When I was living in L.A., we were playing all the time we were like one of the hot club bands in la for what,
1: a, what type of venue what type of venues um, well,
0: our home venue was FIBA cantina i don't know if you remember that place it was right by the warner brothers studios there in Griffith park in, in Center. that was our home gig but we played every every kind of venue we play rock band rock kings we play jazz gigs People were just hiring us because we were doing something nobody ever tried to do before.
1: Something truly unique, yes.
0: And musicians were like hating on us until they heard us, and then they all wanted to join the band. The whole idea of it, they hated till they heard it. And they went, oh, I want to play in this band. And then it would be nights just like Bob Wills, where we'd have 20 people on the stand blowing on it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> cow, cow Bob. And so it's still going, but you don't play as much as oh, you did yeah, a little right. while ago.
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I love it. I, you know, I would in a second revive it and do it. It's just a financial issue, you know, about whether we work because I just putting the band together when half of them live in one town and half live in another. It's a road gig. And if anybody out there wants a really great party, show, music band, we're you guys. Jumping back in time a little bit, I
1: think when many of us first became aware of you, you were doing a residency in San Francisco. Was that at Pearls? Where was that?
0: Yeah, I had a residency there. I, I Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday when I was in town, not on the road. That was my gig. A drummer, Tuesday, I, wow, I, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That's amazing. And a guy named Vince Ladiano was the leader of the trio. And then I would do it when I could. And then you'd get piano players usually take over when i did and you know on thursday nights we often had a uh, guest artist with the house trio i had a kind of a residency out in montclair before that with the guy named dick whittington he had a gig at the new orleans bar and grill and i played there a lot when I, again when i was up not on the road with either my project or somebody else's band
1: what's next i know you're doing um, a show that i'm going to try to go to it'd, it'd be great to meet you in, in person of course I, i'd love to to uh, play with you someday, but you're going to
0: be doing a show at SF Jazz. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, uh, that's a duo with a phenomenal young guitar player named Dan Wilson. Most most notably, most people know him from Joey De Francesco. uh He was in that band for a long time. He's just an amazing player. And he's very much in the George Benson mode, but it's definitely his own guy. We're just going to play duo. We have never played together. I've heard him a bunch, and he's heard me a bunch, and we love each other. But this is our first opportunity to get together and make sound together. So I'm real excited about that. I'm a, I'm a,
1: I'm a rocker that converted. I always loved jazz and played in the high school jazz band. And then when I got the call to play with Keeley Smith, you remember her from Louis Prima, Keeley yeah. Smith, over 15 years ago, I just it re reignited my my love for jazz and of course I got to sing duets with her so it's just I'm a singing guitar player I I like living on the edge and throwing myself into really musically uncomfortable situations because I find that some magic always happens in that but tell tell us about the show at Keys Jazz Bistro when is that
0: first of all Keys Jazz Bistro is is up on Broadway in the space of a famous old jazz club called El Matador Vince Giraldi recorded some famous records there Wow. Ader played there. And first time I heard Kenny Burrell was in that club, but it's also there was a, a late night restaurant, Italian restaurant called Vanessi's right yes. there. And that's also part of cheese jazz bistro. So the showroom is actually in what used to be Vanessi's and the bar is the old El Matador. And, and a guy named Simon Rowe, Australian pianist, has really dedicated himself to making it a great jazz spot for San Francisco. And we going to be playing. I'm playing with a trio. It's a tribute to the drummer, against Laudiano, who led the Turtles band. Uh, I believe he's going to be coming in and hanging. He's not going to play, but he's going to be. We're going to roast him and have a good time and party.
1: When I went to Yoshi's to see, it was it Tito Puente? I'm blanking. But do you know who Ray Oviedo is? Very well. He's a good friend of mine. So he was a mentor to me and a lot of kids growing up in Richmond. And I didn't know he was in the band. And I got to speak to Ray. And he I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm playing at Key's Jazz Bistro. You play there from Wednesday through Saturday night. And that you should play there, George. And I never have hit the guy up to for a gig. I've never been there. And I also don't think they're doing the Wednesday through
0: Saturday thing. They do it sometimes. I'm just doing Wednesday because I couldn't do any more days this week. I have to be back to do other things. But I have done longer runs. This is just a special thing. It's right around Vince's birthday. and We want to just party and honor somebody. I mean, i played with Vince since I was in high school, and he's been such a mentor to me. And,
1: is, he, um, is, he still, is he still active?
0: Yes, uh, somewhat. He's slowed down a little. He's in his 80s now, and he doesn't like to play hard and loud anymore. But he still plays great, and I hang out with him. What makes this music work is people like him mentoring people. You get to play with great players. I'm thinking of all the guys in San Francisco and how lucky I was growing up there because that's what made me who I am. All these incredible players and just let me play with them, make my mistakes and learn to fly.
1: I think you're really hitting the nail on the head. I mean, these music schools are amazing and there's so many, so much young talent, but the way you came up and what you're
0: describing Seems, I don't know, it just seems better to me. I'm just, like, I say, I was just fortunate it was possible. I don't know if that's even as possible today, unless you're in certain pockets of the world. And then he, maybe even then it's difficult. Let's face it, when I was moved out of my house, rent was like $100 a month, gas was 30 cents a gallon. So, you know, a couple of $7,500 gigs, and that was a good month. So today that's the other thing, along with the fact that there's not as many places to play as there were when I was the kid's age of today. So like the school is taking the place of what was happening out in the world. Thank thankfully keeping the music, you know, alive for the young kids. And on one level, yes, I would agree with you that when all us old people say that it was better when we were kids. I don't want to be one of those guys. But I being a person who teaches at a university. I'm coming across amazing talent and amazing creative people who are going to do great stuff. And yeah, maybe I would agree with you. I'd rather see them out playing every night. But that's not really an option right now. And meanwhile, they're hanging out with Peter Erskine and me and Bob Mincer and Alan Pasqua and Vince Mendoza. You know, it's not bad.
1: <laughs> the music is going to survive. It's just going to take on a different form. There's maybe they're They'll be more of the academic side of music, and they won't get to play out as much. But being exposed to great players and getting to hang with them, that's never going to get old.
0: You know my Instagram, where I do first course in the day, which started back at the beginning of the pandemic, and there's a thousand of them now. There's a book that's been published of 16 of them, like Jazz Etudes, where I, they're transcribed in both notation and tab, and they're up as a video that you could scrub or whatever, so do what you need to do it. I made comments about the song and what I was thinking and pointing out some things that we do with stealing, you know, and practicing yourself. It's of course available on Amazon. It's called, uh, you know, jazz guitar to Bruce Foreman. And Great. so uh, I would suggest everybody check it out and please leave a review. It really helps.
1: You got that guys. Support Bruce and support great music and um, check out his Instagram page. I'm, I'm on there every day. He's got the first course of the day. And if you just want a little bit of a musical refresher, it's like a breath of fresh air. And I think that even non-guitarists, people that are n- not geeked out on flat wound strings and hum reduction units, you know, I think that even those kind of people, civilians, we call them civilians. I think that civilians could enjoy it as well. Bruce, thank you so much for having the conversation with us today. Thank and you. I didn't know all this great Barney stuff was going to come out. So it just the geek in me got to geek out a little bit with one of the greats, Bruce Foreman. Hot Jazz Network Podcast, signing off. Thanks again to the great Bruce Foreman, and we'll see you down the road. Take a ride. This is George Cole with our show wrap up. I'd like to thank Source Network Production with executive producer Mark Miller and production support from Pokey Huang. Also on this end, tech support from Sheila Swift. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Hot Jazz Network podcast.